Great to see y'all this morning. It's good to be in God's house. And I have to tell you, what are we, we're doing pretty good on time, actually, because um, this is not going to be short. I'll just tell you, because the, the, we're talking about the place we're going to be for all eternity in Christ. And you want to hear everything that we're going to talk about today. Not because I'm saying it, but because the Word of God says it. Uh, what will life be like in heaven? That's what we're talking about today. What is life going to be like there? Y'all turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 23. Actually, we're going to start with verse 18. I know I didn't put that in the PowerPoint, but um, this is a good place to start, and it'll just, you know, this is why you need to bring your Bible, right? There's a Bible in front of you if you want to follow along there. Um, but Nathan just sang about this verse. You're going you're gonna to recognize some of these words from what he just sang, but this is a powerful passage. We've talked about it already in this series about the world to come. So chapter 8, verse 18, um, before we get into that, I, I do want to tell you about uh, a book that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Silver Chair. This is part of the Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you have read that. Some of you saw the movie, right? Um, but the silver chair is a, is a part of the series they haven't filmed yet. In the, in the silver chair, there are these three main characters who are captured and taken to the underworld, and they're imprisoned there, this place of dark and gloominess and cold. The queen of the underworld bewitches them, and she convinces them that they've been dreaming of Narnia, that it's not real. The, the place they're from uh, is not real. It's actually just a dream. It's just a fairy tale that all that exists is this dark, gloomy, cold underworld, and there's no, there's no uh, green grass, and there's no beautiful forests, and there's no blue skies or birds chirping. There's no meadows and mountains and lakes and oceans, and there's certainly, there's certainly not this magnificent talking lion named Aslan who represents Jesus Christ. No, none of that exists. All that exists is what you see before you. And for a while, the spell works. For a while, the heroes are completely disheartened and discouraged, but then one of them breaks the spell by saying these following words. He says, suppose you're right. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all these things. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that the made up things are a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game if you're right. But three babies playing a game can make a play world that licks your real world hollow. In Ecclesiastes 3.11 it says that God set eternity in the hearts of men and women. In, Revel in, in Philippians 3.20 it says that our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. So... If you wonder sometimes why life in this world seems so unhappy, so hard, so difficult, it's because we're not really home. This isn't where we're supposed to be. There is a better world waiting for us. The old Baptist preacher Vance Havner used to say, I'm homesick for heaven. It's the thought of dying that's kept me alive this long. This world, a lot like the queen of the underworld, tries to convince us this is all there is. This is as good as it gets. Just get it through your thick skulls. Nothing better is coming. Make the best of things now. But we know better. Our hearts tell us a different story. Our minds tell us a different tale. And we're not the only ones that feel that way. So in Romans 8, verse 18, it says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the children, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So if you were with us last week, you know that's what we talked about last week is the, the redemption of our bodies. That The fact that while we know that if we're in Christ the moment we stop breathing here, we start breathing heavenly air. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We got that comfort. We have that comfort to know that when we die, we're immediately with Jesus. But that's not the best part. What we're really looking forward to is the redemption of our bodies. When Christ returns and the dead in Christ shall rise and we will be changed. And we inherit these new resurrection bodies. We talked about that last week. But what kind of world will we be living on uh, when we're in those bodies? What kind of planet will we walk on? Because this passage tells us, and many other passages in Scripture tell us, that the world we'll be living in will be this world, but this world redeemed. You know, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you have experienced conversion to Christ, you know you're not the same person you once were. You still look the same. You still have the same DNA. Your, your fingerprints are still the same. Your eye color is still the same. But you are a new person. In the same way, we will still live in this world. It'll just be redeemed. And what will that mean exactly? This is an interesting passage because it, it talks about the whole creation groaning. Now, you and I know that mountains and rocks and trees and animals can't audibly groan uh, in the way Paul describes. So what he's doing is he's using a technique called anthropomorphism, which is a fun word to say. Just try it sometime. It'll make you feel really smart. Anthropomorphism literally means to ascribe non-human things, to ascribe human characteristics to non-human things, animals and uh, inanimate objects. And what Paul is saying is that if the universe could speak, if the world itself could speak, they would say, I'm looking forward to something. I am groaning. I'm yearning for a better world. I'm, re I'm yearning for the redemption of this planet. He even describes the world as being like a woman in the pains of childbirth. So think about that image and then understand when you watch things on TV and you see, you see earthquakes, you see fires, you see floods, you see famines, when you see divorce and dysfunction in our families, when you see poverty and uh, lack of education and drug addiction, when you see uh, crime and you see violence, when you see someone go into a synagogue yesterday and shoot 11 people, when you see things like that, understand these are birth pains. Jesus said it in Matthew 20. He said, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, these are just the beginnings of the birth pains. But you know, the thing about a birth pain is it produces something good. A woman in labor is in intense pain, but that pain gives birth to something she's thankful for. In the same way, this world and all of its troubles, every time you see something in the news, see, here's the mistake a lot of Christians make. They see some tragedy and they think, oh, well, Jesus must be coming back tomorrow or today. That's not necessarily what it means. It's just a reminder. This world is giving birth to something better. Amen? That's good news. So what does that world look like? I mean, I could walk away right now and you'd all get to lunch earlier, but you want to know what this world is like. And the Bible tells us 
in, in many ways what this world will be like. So what I want to do in this message, I want to talk about the things we know for sure, right? The things we know for sure because the Bible is clear on them. And then toward the end, I want to talk about the things we're not positive about, but we can speculate on, we can talk about, we can, we can debate amongst ourselves and use our God-given discernment, all right? So the, I'm going to have to talk really fast, by the way. We're covering a lot of ground here, and I know you guys are hungry. So <laughs> what do we know about the world where we're going to live? Number one, Jesus will be there. The Lord Jesus, God the Father, His Holy Spirit, they will be with us all the time. We will have unhindered access to them. We will be in their presence all the time. Revelation 21.3 is just one of many verses that tells us, now the dwelling of God is with men. This is on the day Christ returns, it says, now the dwelling of God is with men and He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. This was the promise of Scripture all through, and this is the finish of our salvation. Now, I want to say something that's going to sound a little bit harsh, but, but I, I need to say it. That's going to be the point of the new earth, is us being in the presence of God. We're going to get into all these other activities we'll do and what else we'll do on a daily basis in a moment, but I hope you understand if it doesn't sound exciting to you to live in a world where every single thing is focused on the glory of God, knowing Him better, making Him proud, worshiping His name, if that doesn't sound good to you, then maybe you're not ready for heaven. Maybe heaven's not your home. Maybe you need to ask the Lord what needs to happen in my heart to change my heart that, that I'm worried about other things. Because if you don't want to live in a world where every single thought is going to be motivated by, how does this bless God? How does this get me closer to Him? Then heaven's not your real home. If that's not your desire, if you don't, for instance, if it doesn't sound good to you to walk in His footsteps the way the disciples did, or to, to have His Holy Spirit so infilling you that your every thought is glorifying to Him. That you have power and you have joy and you're always close to Him. If you, if you don't desire to stand in God's holy presence, God your Father, and ask Him the questions that have been weighing you down for years and just worshiping Him and knowing Him better, then something's wrong. But if those things capture the desire of your heart, if those sound like something that, that sounds good to you, then that's where you're headed. Jesus will be there. And by the way, just so you know, who invented pleasure? Who created fun? Who created joy? Who made it so pleasurable to laugh? God created all those things. So being in His presence will be the sum of joy for you and me. Jesus will be there. Number two, sin and its effects will not be there. Revelation 21.4, the very next verse from the one we just read says, He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And then Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. This, Isaiah 11 is one of the great chapters in the Bible about the new earth. It says, The wolf will lie with the lamb. The, the leopard will, live, will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover 
the sea. So imagine a world where every molecule, every atom in creation points to its creator and is perfectly representative of his love and his power and his grace and his glory. That's the world we'll live in. It's a world that is going to be peaceful in every sense of the word. See, a lot of folks don't realize this, but one of the core teachings of Scripture is that this world was perfect, and then we sinned, and we brought pain, and we brought suffering, and we brought death into it. And now God is going to have redeemed this whole planet, have, have, have wiped away all the sin, and all the stain, and all the curse. And so we'll live in a world that is completely peaceful. We'll live in a world that has excitement without stress and joy without fear and achievement without arrogance and abundance without jealousy. And then third, there will be worship in that world. There will be worship. Revelation 21-22 says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So what this means is we will never go to church again. Thank you for not clapping. Thank you. Thank you for not saying amen, okay? Um, but, but we won't need to. There will not need to be a building that says church because God's going to be among us. Now, I love what we do on Sunday mornings. This is my favorite time of the week, every week. But think about what a pale imitation this is of what we have to look forward to. I'm sorry, I'm, not, I'm really not trying to, to, to make to downgrade what I do for a living because I love what I do. But think about how pathetic it is that we're children of God and we come and we gather in a physical building once a week and we sing songs that somebody else wrote and we listen to some guy talk about God when what's waiting for us is we're with Him. And we don't need some guy to talk about God because we see Him. Because we experience Him. And every day we spend there, we know Him a little bit better. And that will be worship. And, and it's funny, I, I have to wonder, what am I going to do for a living? There will be no need for what I do on this earth. But I'm not the only one. People who are doctors, people who are nurses, people who, for goodness sakes, funeral directors are definitely going to have to find a new line of work, right? Uh, EMTs, uh, uh, people who uh, work in law enforcement, people who, who do fire prevention, people who are in our military, they're all doing God's work now, but they're going to have a different job there because there's not going to be any need for what they do here. And everything we do will be worship. Now, I, I've got news for you. Not only will we never have to listen to somebody preach in the new world because will be in the presence of God. The other thing we think of as worship is singing, right? Now, we're evangelical believers, and so that's, that's what we've grown up with. We sing, and we listen to preaching, and we go home. Well, we'll still sing. For all you stick in the muds, and a lot of you are men who are this way, who are like, I don't like singing. You're going to like it there. You're going to enjoy it there. You're going to have a reason to sing, and you're going to get over yourself in heaven. And I think we're going to sing beautifully. But please understand that preaching and singing isn't all there is to worship. Do you know that anything you do with the glory of God in mind, anything you do with the desire to bring joy to His heart is an act of worship. And I look at it this way. When I was a kid growing up, whenever I would play in a ball game, whenever I would uh, sing in a choir or act in a play, my parents would come. And my first thought, even up till I was a high schooler, my first thought was always, I want to do well because mom and dad are watching. I want them to be proud of me. And afterwards, I'd always ask them, well, how did I do? Now, here's the thing. 
when we do anything in this world, whether it's driving a nail, whether it's changing a diaper, whether it's cleaning a house, whether it's designing something new, whether it's teaching a class, whatever we do, if our motivation, our chief motivation is, I want to make my father proud, then that is an act of worship just as much as me preaching a sermon or you singing a song. And in heaven, everything we do, on the new earth, everything we do will be an act of worship because we'll be aware of His presence and we'll want to make Him proud. So there will be worship and there will be work. The Bible mentions work. John in Revelation 21 and 22 talks about the the kings of the nations bringing the the best things they've made from their countries into the heavenly city. We'll talk about that heavenly city next week. In in Jesus' parables, many of them, He talks about work. For instance, the parable of the minas, if you look that up, uh, the, the rewards given to people who did well were responsibilities in the new earth. To the guy who, who took his master's money and, and made more money, he says, good, you'll get ten, ten cities in the next kingdom. Uh, to, to you who, who made five more uh, bags of coins, you get to rule over five cities in the new kingdom. So there will be work, there will be responsibilities. And if that bothers you, if you're like me and you have a little bit of the spiritual gift of leisure, <laughs> it's not actually a spiritual gift, If it bothers you to hear that there's going to be work in the new earth, please understand that work itself is a gift of God. Work is not a curse. Now, our work has been cursed by our sin, and so our work is frustrating at times. Our work is unfruitful at times. But in the new earth, we'll be given jobs to do that are fulfilling. Now, most of us in this world don't get to do what we love most and get paid for it. I'm one of the rare exceptions Don't tell the personnel committee, but I love this job so much, I would do it if you didn't pay me. Please don't tell the personnel committee. Imagine doing something you love. In fact, think about the thing you love to do more than anything else. Think about the thing that you're really, really good at. And when you do it, other people just stand back and go, wow. Think about being able to do something that well, with that much enjoyment, with that, much, with that much pleasure given to others. And think about being able to do that all the time and bringing glory to God through it. And that, I think, is what work will be like in the new earth. There will be worship, there will be work, and there will be celebration, reward, and rest. Celebration. Celebration. Jesus talks about it all the time. In fact, every time in the, in the Scriptures when Jesus talks about the end of this world and the beginning of the next, what does He compare it to? He compares it to a wedding feast. Now I know, I know, weddings in our day are insane, right? We spend way too much money. Poor little brides just turn into bridezilla because they're so crazy because everything's got to go just right and oh, it's so stressful. But in the ancient world, in Jesus' time, weddings weren't like that. Weddings were a time when everybody in the village knocked off work early, left the crops in the field, gathered together, and they ate and drank and they laughed and they danced and they they did that all day long and just enjoyed one another. It was a time of true celebration. And aren't you glad that when Jesus says that heaven is going to be like something, He compares it to the most fun thing He could think of. It will be a place of constant celebration. It will be a place of reward as well. The Bible is very clear. You read Jesus' parables about the next world, they're almost all about the subject of rewards. And that bothers some people. They're like, well, I, I thought everything should be equal in that world. Well, 
has everybody given an equal share to God's kingdom? Now, I know, I know we're all going to get there by grace. Every single one of us, not a single person in this world will walk into the new earth and say, look what I did. Look what I accomplished. We'll all be so humbled to know I'm here only by the grace of God. And if we ever wonder about that, we'll just see the scars on Jesus' hands and feet and his forehead and we'll know it's by his grace. But at the same time, I think we're going to be glad to see someone who has given her life selflessly for the kingdom. Some man who has laid down his life for the sake of God, that his efforts are recognized. That in this world where everything's about how you look or how much money you have or who your daddy is, it's not going to be like that. In the next world, the first will be last and the last will be first. And there's some people that you and I haven't even heard of that we're going to look up to in the new earth and say, that's someone who lived the right kind of life. And God recognized them. And we will be glad. Those rewards won't be status symbols like fancy cars and big houses. It's going to be something. We don't know what it will be, but it will be something that will will cause us not envy, but cause us to admire and glory in God's grace. There will be celebration, reward, and there's also going to be rest. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now that promise is for right now, but it will be most perfectly fulfilled in the new earth. I don't know about you. There's a wide range of ages in this room. Some of you are young enough to be my kids. Some of you are old enough to be my parents. But here's the thing. All of us have this idea in our minds, you know, someday I'm going to quit working, right? Someday I'm going to retire. You realize, of course, that makes us rather unique. I mean, most of humanity's history and even a lot of the planet today, there hasn't been enough affluence that people could just say, eh, I'm 65, I'm going to quit working. So that's a good thing that we live in such an affluent society. But please understand, please understand that's not our true rest. You know, when you get to that age and and you look around and you think, good grief, now I'm raising my grandkids. Oh no, I've got all these responsibilities. I thought I was going to get to rest. Your rest hasn't started yet. If you're my age and and retirement is is somewhere down the road, but you think, "Eh, I can kind of see it, and then the stock market tumbles and all your money goes away, and you're like, I'm never going to be able to retire. Your rest is secure. At another church I pastored, I followed a man who who had been there for many years. He was a lot like Brother Harrington. Very, very devoted to the church. Just a good man. Just basically incarnated his DNA in those people. And then he retired. And then after about six months, they, they called me as their pastor. And then a few months later... He passed away very suddenly, just had a heart attack and died. And, and I got to walk that church through that process of grief. And I remember, I remember one thing that one of the great ladies of the church said that just broke my heart. She said, what really, really devastates me is he worked so hard and he didn't get to enjoy his retirement. Think about that. He hasn't missed anything. His rest hasn't yet begun. He's not missed anything. If you're worried about your earthly bucket list, please, there's something far, far better coming. And we're going to get into that in more specifics in a moment. So, what else? What else is there in the new world? Because I know you're worried about certain things. I know some of you are like, will I get to play golf in heaven? Will I get to go hunting in heaven? Will there be shopping in heaven? Will we get to eat steak in heaven? What I like to encourage people to do and I'm serious about this, is play the why not game. Now here's the why not game. Here's the rules. Know the Scriptures. Ask yourself the question, will this particular activity or thing be in heaven 
Why not? Is there a reason I can think of why it won't be? Is there anything in the Bible that says specifically that it won't be in heaven? Is there anything, if, that's not, if it's not directly addressed in the Scriptures, is there anything about that activity that I think, no, that's not appropriate for a place in God's home. That is something that, that keeps people away from Him, that doesn't draw, him, draw them to Him. Is there anything about that activity that couldn't possibly be used to His glory? Because if you can't say no to any of those things, then you can assume that will be there. That's the why not game. So for instance, the classic question that I know many of you are wondering about, will my pets be in heaven? And and this is not an inconsequential question. I say yes, because why not? After all, we've already seen in Isaiah 11 that there will be animals there, all kinds of animals. We serve a God of incredible grace who can do anything He wants. Could he, if he wanted, bring some specific pet that's important to you to that world to live with you? Yes, he could. Will he? I think he will. I don't know, but I certainly think he could. And I'm assuming he will. That's the why not game right there. So, more serious question. Will there be learning and discovery in heaven? In the new earth, will we learn new things or we just get there and... And, and be already full of knowledge. I think there's going to be learning and there's going to be discovery because God knows the joy that we find when we learn new things. Now, you may not enjoy learning about the same subjects that I do, but we all enjoy learning and discovering new things. God knows this. John talks in Revelation about coming across people from different cultures. John talks about different nations in the new earth. So think about this. And I'm just going to speak for a moment as a history nerd. Almost every human culture in history will have someone there. Because the gospel has, I mean, ever since, ever since the first century, the gospel has reached almost every culture you can name. So I will get to meet people from cultures that I've only read about. I'll get to ask them questions. I'll get to try their food. I'll get to listen to their music. I'll get to hear their stories. I'll get to explore their world through their eyes. I'll get to see sights I never could have seen in any way. We could eat the best food from all over the earth. We could hear the best music. We could visit the most beautiful places. Get this. I believe that grace applies even to engineers. Okay? So we're going to design new technologies. Maybe explore the, the farthest reaches of space. God, I think, is not through creating new things. We'll explore new worlds that He Himself made. Because why not? We will have time to read the best books that have ever been written, and some of those authors are probably going to keep on writing. We'll get to sit at the feet of the greatest teachers who've ever lived and hear their wisdom and talk it over amongst ourselves. Yes, there's going to be learning the discovery. Third, will opportunities we lost in this life be fulfilled in the next? Now, I need to speak sensitively on this subject. There's a lot of women probably in this room and certainly in this world who've lost children to miscarriage. There's couples probably in this room who've lost young children. Will those people be reunited with the children they lost? Yes, absolutely. Will they, will they see them as infants and get to raise them to adulthood? In other words, get to do what they didn't get to do in this life? Why not? Why wouldn't God give them that opportunity? Does that bring comfort? Does that make us joyful? Does that that just give us a clue into the heart of our Father? 
Think about, think about people in this world who, for no fault of their own, they have not had the physical capacity to do some of the things they've wanted to do. Well, those people will be able to climb mountains, run marathons, play basketball, dance. Absolutely. Because why not? Why would God deprive them of that opportunity? What about people who, whose heart wanted to see the great wonders of the world and yet because they financially couldn't afford it or because they've been too busy raising a family or too busy helping people, too busy serving God, maybe they haven't been able to do any of those things they've wanted to do. Will they have those same opportunities in the next world? Why not? I mean, I'm probably never going to see Paris in this world, but I look forward to seeing the new Paris, the new Hong Kong, the new Anchorage, Alaska, the new Hawaii. Why not? God is a gracious God. He's a creative God. And I believe that promise when Jesus says to His disciples, whatever you've given up for me, you're going to get it back hundredfold. I think that's going to be totally fulfilled in the next life. There's nothing you sacrifice for the Lord now you'll ever regret. Now let me give you a couple of warnings. Really one main warning. When you're talking about heaven, when you're playing the why not game, make sure you know the difference between the things you think and the things you know. We talked about the things we know. We know Jesus will be there. We know sin will not be. We know that there's going to be celebration and reward and rest and work and worship. But a lot of things we're just speculating on. Make sure you know the difference. I mean, I, I have my opinions, but I'm not going to say, yeah, my, my pet snookums is going to be there for sure. And if you think differently, you're going to hell. I'm not going to be dogmatic about something unless I can prove it from the Scriptures. So keep that in mind. Know the difference between what you think and what you know. Now, some of you are probably sitting there very uncomfortable because you're saying, is it right to speculate about these things? I mean, shouldn't we just, shouldn't we just wait? I mean, doesn't it say in the Bible, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor is the mind of God, nor is the mind of man conceived what God has prepared for his people? Yes, but the very next verse says the Holy Spirit of God has revealed these things to us. Yes, it is right for us to think of these things. Paul says in Colossians 3, that we are to set our minds on things above. How are we supposed to do that unless we envision them? I think God is greatly honored and blessed when we daydream about heaven. I think God loves it when we sit around and ponder what that world will be like. In fact, I hope over lunch today, that's one of the things you talk about. I mean, heck, the Texans aren't even playing. Just talk about what this world is going to be. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think this will be here? Yeah, what do you think this will be like? That is a God-honoring thing. And someone might say, well, aren't those, things, aren't those things kind of unspiritual? I mean, shouldn't we just think about God? Who do you think created all these things? There's nothing unspiritual about a hug from your, from your best friend. There's nothing unspiritual about laughing at a joke as long as you're not laughing at someone else's expense. There's nothing unspiritual about eating a good meal, enjoying yourself... Physical exertion, doing something you enjoy, all of those things are holy things. And when we do them in such a way that honors God, those are acts of worship. There's nothing unspiritual about any of this stuff. And then somebody might say, well, but what if we're wrong? What if we get there and none of these things you've described are there? What if, what if we get there and, and we can't play golf? What if we get there and we can't go fishing? What if we get there, you know what? If I get there and the things I most enjoy aren't there, it's only because God has created something even better for me to enjoy. Do I really, am I so ignorant that I think that God doesn't know how to show me pleasure and joy? That I'm going to get there and He's going to say, oh, well, I guess I should have thought of that. So if 
there's something missing there that we enjoy down here, it's only because God had something better in mind. It's maybe a silly illustration of the point, but, but here's how I look at it. When I was like eight or nine, what I thought about all the time was football. Watching it, reading about it, but mostly playing it. You know, if a bunch of boys were around, I'd want to play football with them. If there weren't boys around, I'd go out and throw the ball at trees. I just, I just wanted to play. That's all I thought of. If you would have told me at eight years old, someday you're going to meet somebody who you're going to fall in love with, and, and this person is going to change your life and make you so happy, and I would have said, uh, is he a quarterback? You know, is he a wide receiver? I can think I want to be the quarterback. Only not knowing that basically 10 years later, I would meet someone uh, and and fall in love with that person. And she did change my life. And and I got to tell you, we haven't played a lot of football. We we really haven't. And it hasn't really mattered. Because now that I'm older, now that I'm in love with someone, childish things seem childish. I still like throwing the football around, but it's not what brings me most joy. Do you see what I mean? There are things, I think, that when we get to the new earth that we'll look back on on this earth and think, why was that such a consuming passion for me? We might still do them there, but they won't be what drives us. And if we don't do them there, it's only because we see how ridiculous they were down here because God has given us something better. Here's what I can promise you. Nobody, nobody, nobody's going to be disappointed in that world. The God who created all things the God who knows us better than we know ourselves, knows how to give us a world that is the inheritance of the King of Kings. So, I want you to think about this for a moment. You know that in most cultures in history, and even in many cultures today, parents choose the mates for their children. So, students, how do you like that idea? Mom and dad, you know, pick, your, pick your wife, pick your husband. You know, Now that my kids are older, that sounds like a good idea to me. We don't happen to live in one of those cultures, but... Think about, think about a, a young man today whose dad comes to him, he lives in one of those cultures, dad comes to him and says, son, I've found your bride. And of course his question is, well, what's she like? Well, she's perfect. She's, she's, she's got a, a strong heart. She's got uh, fierce intelligence. She's kind. She's gentle. Um, she's loves, she loves God. She is so full of virtue. She's everything that you need in a wife. She's going to make you a better man. Now imagine that boy goes away and he thinks, well, that all sounds great, but what if I'm not attracted to her? I mean, I mean, what if she's really good, but just she's not attractive at all to me? I mean, I, I'm, glad, I'm glad that she's a good person, but what if, what if I'm married for the rest of my life to someone I really find admirable, but I just don't love? Because doesn't that kind of sound like what some of our fears are regarding the new earth? What, you know, what, if, what if I'm not, what if, what if it's not really what I wanted So imagine this young man on his wedding day is just so nervous because he's about to be yoked for life to this person who he's never even seen. And he stands there at the front of the church and he sees this woman covered with this heavy veil come down the the aisle and stand there next to him and and he says his vows and she says her vows and at the end of the ceremony, the, the minister says, by the power invested in me, I pronounce you husband and wife, you may kiss the bride. And imagine with... With trembling fingers, he takes that veil and he lifts it. And his jaw drops as he looks into the face of the most beautiful woman he's ever seen in his life. He just didn't even know there was such a woman on earth. His knees go weak. And he leans in to give her a kiss. The first of what he hopes are many, many kisses. And he thinks to himself, 
I should have trusted my father. And so should we.